Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Currency Exchange, a NatWest Markets podcast series all about foreign exchange markets. And today we're going to be talking about Asia and China specifically. China is one of the main growth engines in the world. And recently we've seen some weakness in the Chinese currency. So we're going to talk about that. What's the outlook for China and where do we go from here? And to help discuss that, I'm very happy to be joined by Galvin Chia, our EM Asia strategist uh, out of Singapore. Thank you very much for joining, Galvin. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. So maybe I can just start you off with a broad question here. I mentioned at the outset, the Chinese currency has been weakening. Dollar CNH is now decidedly above the 7.0 psychological level. Um, what's going on here? What's been driving this weakness in the currency? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I feel like there's, there's a couple of Thing, a couple of factors that have really just come together uh, and, and sort of help push uh, the currency back above this, you know, psychological seven levels you mentioned. Right. So the first thing is, I think primarily, you know, we're in an environment where the dollar is kind of creeping higher. Again. You know, markets are talking about the Fed again. Markets are talking about inflation now. Debt, uh, the debt ceiling worries are done and dusted. You know, markets are thinking about well, is is actually is 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 U.S. growth. Uh, is U.S. Uh, is the U.S. consumer doing a lot better than we had thought it was, right? And then I think you know there's a couple of other things domestically that have helped engineer that push higher. Well, I think the biggest one for me is this idea that there were these lofty expectations about Chinese uh, the Chinese economy, the Chinese rebound coming into 2023, and I think that's really been brought down to earth pretty hard and pretty fast. I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a big growth revision. But I think it's the speed at which you know markets were disappointed by the recent data. You know the the speed at which people had to pare back some of these ex- expectations about how strong the consumer was going to be, how strong you know infrastructure or, or commodity demand is going to be. That's kind of helped fuel this disappointment, right? And I think the other sort of underlying simmering tension that that's kind of we're probably going to see lingering around China for at least the next. You know, I would say the next six to twelve months, at the very least, at the very least, is this idea of you know risk, uh, whether it's geopolitical risk or operational risk. I think this is really key because we're in an environment globally for FX markets and financial markets more broadly, where you know geopolitics, politics is really going to be into matter, right? And I think in China, you know, there are these uh, lately. You know, we've been having not just the, the ongoing you know U.S. China trade tensions right which have been a simmering theme since President Trump's uh, presidency but also this idea that you know in China they are cracking down as well in the name of national security now be that as they may you know it may be a legitimate concern but it's also worrying a lot of domestic uh, sorry a lot of foreign investors as to you know what's the line that they shouldn't cross in China right so I think you know all these sort of factors uh, are sort of combining to, to produce this overall sense of cautiousness, right? And I think that, you know, the, the, the one factor that fanned the flames there was, you know, we had that dollar move a little bit higher and and, and sort of markets are all, uh, and the markets were primed already to view the Chinese economy and the Chinese currency kind of negatively, kind of bearishly. And that sort of helped it, you know, uh, uh, push up above seven uh, pretty decidedly uh, over the course of the last, uh, you know, couple of days and weeks. I think it's important to, that you mention that there are two sides to this coin. Certainly, the dollar rebound, um, generally speaking, on the back of some better U.S. data and changing Fed expectations, has certainly been a part of this story. Um, and it's interesting because it does feel like there's a bit of circularity here, where the stronger Fed and stronger U.S. outlook, weakening the CNH and weakening the Chinese currency, that's fed into a little bit to this market concern about global growth. If the Chinese currency is coming under pressure. What does that mean for the growth outlook? 
What does that mean for you know the growth outlook, not just for China, but for uh, the rest of the world? You know, China's reopening, I think, was a big macro story to start the year. Um, and like you said, the recent data, particularly for April, have been very disappointing. So I want to ask you, um, which of these, tr- which of the two sides of the trend do you think is right, or if do you think either of them is right? Do you think the market was overestimating Chinese growth coming into the reopening? So say the first three months, was that over, is that sort of, uh, was that giving us too strong a signal? Or do you think maybe on the other side, are we over-interpreting some of the weakness that we've had um, in April? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Brian. I think that's a really central question that's going to be sort of important for you know the, the sort of US versus rest of the world outlook, but also for Asia and for China. Uh, more specifically, right? I think I, I'd hate to say it, but you know, it's kind of a bit of both. I think sure. you know, coming into this year, coming into this idea of the rebound and the recovery from COVID zero, you know, you couldn't really um, uh, put past the Chinese economy, right? Such a huge engine of growth that's been dampened for such a long time. Like you couldn't help but expect that uh, uh, there'd be a strong rebound. And I think in some particular sectors. And this is, I think, the key that it, that's playing out in very particular sectors that makes it very difficult to translate into a sort of more abstract thing like, uh, like, like the currency, right? Because you know you hear anecdotal stories about it being very difficult to get flights, uh, that restaurants are packed, people are out, people are happy, you know, hotels are full. But on the other hand, you know, it's this idea that you know people aren't really having the confidence to spend on big ticket items, right? So auto sales has been disappointing. You know, property sales are picking back up again, but you know, the pace of growth in in prices or in, you know, the the the, the land transactions, those aren't quite as high as people had thought, right? And I think at the same time there is this idea like, you know, we've seen this so many times for the US economy, in the UK economy and in China that the economics suggests that, you know, there is a, a multi-quarter kind of theme in the recovery. But the markets are demanding things over, you know, a, m- a multiple of weeks, not not months. So, I, you know, like we sort of mentioned, you know, it's this idea of the expectations part of the, of the markets that I think have been severely, um, severely disappointed, right? But at the same time, you know, you mentioned the beginning of the year these sort of broad expectations uh, about China supporting global growth. I don't think. You know, being in Asia and looking at the Chinese rebound, it was never to me that obvious that it would be, you know, a frenzy of the Chinese buying copper, or the frenzy of Chinese buying steel or, you know, importing everything, right? It was always somewhere a, a little bit less than that. So I think, you know, there is an element of, of the world sort of or, or sort of foreign investors, particularly you, you, using that old playbook of, you know, they're going to stimulate everything. They're going to build bro- bridges to nowhere. Uh, and and you know it's going to be the, you know this next commodities super cycle, right? So it was kind of somewhere in between on that. But I think yeah, like you mentioned, you know this this sort of crash in expectations has just seemed to come particularly hard and fast at a time where you know the Fed expectations started to ramp up a little bit again. I think it's really interesting um, the way you categorize that. This feels much more services led in terms of the reopening being a services style led recovery as opposed to a manufacturing or building or construction-led recovery, which I think we've become so used to from China, that the manufacturing cycle, that the external-facing economy, um, building materials to export to other economies, that's been the big driver of Chinese growth. And now it feels like Absolutely. it's a bit of a different story. So like you said, you know, you sort of touched on this, but I'd love, you to ex- love for you to expand on it. Um, China is an inflationary engine for the rest of the world. Um, you've never really seen that 
this China recovery was going to be a big inflationary moment. And certainly, I would imagine that the recent slowing in data has probably reinforced your view here. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, we were talking about this in March, and definitely other sort of economist circles were also uh, at that point in time, you know, assessing the fact that you know this was going to be primarily service or uh, consumer led rather than. Uh, a credit-led infrastructure lifting. Um, uh, you know, the, the authorities, especially the PBOC, um, have always been very wary about this debt overhang that's been plaguing in China since the last credit-fueled cycle. Uh, and, and they've always talked about being a little bit more cautious, right? So to us, it was always, um, you know, the, uh, a matter that this was trying to be consumer-led. And, and I guess for us, the question was, how broad was that going to be, right? So, so I think this assumption you know, this assumption or this heuristic, this bias that the rest of the world has been thinking about that, you know, this would be an old style recovery uh, is is uh, something that has stuck, you know, over the last, uh, I don't know, what is it now, like eight years or something, right? But but I think at the same time, it, 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 we may start to see elements of an old style um, uh, uh, economy start to emerge as well, particularly, you know, if we see the consumer not being particularly strong. You know, does that mean that state-owned enterprises, you know, are, are are coming back to the fore? I mean, you also mentioned very interestingly that you know China previously being this exports economy, actually Chinese exports continue to do incredibly well. The last uh, uh, trade numbers, I think, for the April month uh, saw a ninety billion dollar monthly surplus, right? And that's the highest, you know, that's that's still post-COVID highs. That's still, you know, record highs. So in terms of the surplus that, that the Chinese data is showing, you know, that's actually still very much in the driving seat. I think at this point in time. So you, I want to ask you about um, the response from authorities in China, specifically to slowing growth. Um, you have only seen one month of slowing, and as you mentioned, there is a desire to not, you know, fuel a credit cycle, fuel a credit boom, one that really hurts long-term imbalances. Um, is that something you think is going to hang over a near-term decision? So, you know, we have only seen one month of slowing, but the market is already really clamoring for uh, for additional easing, uh, whether it come from fiscal side or from the monetary side. I think you put it best earlier where the market thinks very short-term, but if there's one economy that I feel like is always thinking long-term, uh, it's the Chinese economy. And so, where do you think policymakers fall in, in terms of stimulus? Well, do you think that there's a moment here where uh, growth has slowed enough that China is going to try and step in from the stimulus side, or you think it's going to be more targeted and maybe slower than the market hopes? Yeah, absolutely. That's a critical question as well, right? I think at this point in time, it's very difficult to see a huge reason why, uh, a compelling reason why the authorities should you know, come in all guns blazing and throw in the kitchen sink as well, right? I mean, the one easy metric that you know I believe we might have discussed before in our conversations is, you know, the growth estimates, right? So let's say um, growth expectations from a market kind of point of view. You know, you look at what the, the other economists are saying. That was maybe uh, earlier this year. That was prob- they were probably looking at around five point eight percent for twenty twenty three for the full year. Now I think after the recent set of data, that's probably been pared back a little bit. Let's put it at five and a quarter, right? So let's say five point eight. Five and five and three quarters paired back to five uh, and a quarter. Uh, that's compared to a GDP target that they've been setting for this year, five percent. So I think you know, regardless the, the way it's going, you know, and we are still you know halfway through the year, right? Um, the way it's been going, it isn't looking catastrophically bad. So you know, from a if you if you say you want to play it prudent, you want to play it uh, conservative, 
that's not really reason to, to ease big time just yet, right? And if anything, you know, the, the PBOC, uh, Governor Yi Gang, has made it abundantly clear, very interestingly, in both Chinese and in English, in a speech he gave uh, in, in April, I believe, in, in Washington, D.C., that he was saying that, you know, the central bank this time is really going to play it under his, uh, under his authority. The central bank is going to be very conservative and very prudent on what they're going to go, what they're going to do. So to me, you know, I think that sounds a lot like you know they might tweak here and there. They might try to maybe increase some of the liquidity in the banking system, but it's not going to be something like you know again they're not going to be building empty cities and they're not going to be building bridges to nowhere. So so it, it's really a, I think something about you know calibrating these market expectations, fine tuning these market expectations. It certainly sounds like the Western playbook of when growth is low and growth weakens and amid an environment where inflation in China has been relatively contained, the market's always looking for the next dose of stimulus. Uh, but in this case, it looks like that just might not be coming. And I mean, you mentioned a really good point, thinking back to when the Chinese government set their growth, uh, sort of the growth targets for this year, that came in well below where the market was expecting. And you know, we were talking about that at the time as something that said, you know, maybe that the Officials would be willing to tolerate a slowdown in growth if it were to come, if the if the growth in China were to maybe miss versus expectations a little bit. And it certainly seems like that's playing out now. And I do want to turn to the TBOC now because we know that you know the Chinese authorities you know have a uh, certainly have a history of managing the currency and trying to lean against weakness, um, whether that be by encouraging um, changes to the way that the dollar standby fixes um, or via outright uh, intervention. Uh, but it seems like out uh, aside from what we, you might call verbal interventions, where uh, the PBOC governor came out and said, we will try and curb speculation in the currency. That seems like you know that shot across the bow feels like it's the only thing that that, that feels like it's been the only um, response from officials so far. Do you think that continues? Do you think the authorities are going to be willing to step up more directly to try and limit the currency weakness that we've seen as a result of some of this softer data. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be difficult to to for you know to 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 say what the authorities won't do. I definitely think that they'll reserve that option, you know, uh, as as all central banks did, you know, last year of of potentially you know intervening, uh, not necessarily directly, but perhaps through some of their their you know the state owned banks. Um, but you know, I think what has how, how, what we've seen, you know, throughout the course of last year and this year, is that the seven level, where previously was very significant and was, you know, the sort of do or die, last stand kind of line in the sand, um, it's not been that anymore. You know, we broke past seven uh, in I think Q three last year and came down again, and and we're back up above seven again. And and so far, you know, it seems like uh, the PBOC is really willing to let at least the currency markets. Uh, 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 fluctuate uh, according to supply and demand. Now, I think there will be points in time where, whereby you know, as you mentioned, this verbal intervention happened, and that probably happened when the move up uh, towards seven was happening, especially quick. Uh, but other than that, you know, it, it, I think the regime for central banks, PBOC included, is perhaps try to slow the direction of of, of travel, but not um, not not try to reverse it entirely. You know, they learned a very costly lesson. Uh, in, in sort of the mid 2010s, uh, and I think that they're they're pretty set on not repeating that one again. Yeah, it certainly sounds like that slowing volatility, slowing the directional move, um, is probably more important or perhaps more palatable than picking a specific level in the sand and saying this is a level beyond which we don't want the currency 
to move. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You think, you know, the currency traditionally has a bit of a growth release valve, a pressure release valve for the economy that when the economy slows and the currency weakens, that obviously has some potential positive growth benefits from the export side. And that in itself is a bit of stimulus. So if you think about the currency as a release valve, I think it makes some sense to allow, you know, to, to not be leaning so hard against currency weakness that comes for what I would consider fundamental reasons. You mentioned the dollar has been rallying the uh, against a lot of currencies. The Chinese currency is not the only one that's been weakening against the dollar uh, recently, though it is obviously one of the very notable ones. Um, Absolutely. I do, yeah, I do want to turn to um, another economy in your region. You're not just a China specialist. You are uh, covering the entirety of emerging markets, Asia. Talk about one of the other major uh, global economies, and that is India. Um, India is almost a bit of a counterpoint to China in some ways. I want to ask, what's what's sort of the big themes in India right now, and how are you thinking about the growth uh, growth in in India? Yeah, I think you know this idea of the counterpoint. I think is is a really good point because I think you know if you sort of step back and abstract a little bit, uh, there's a lot of things that are kind of almost you know on the opposite side of what's been happening in China. Indian growth over the course of the last fiscal year has actually, you know, that that number printed recently, and it came in at 7.2% year on year. And, and I mean, compared to China's target of five, right? Like, you know, sort of mathematically, India technically would be the one that is lifting global growth, not China, right? So so I think that's a pretty incredible point. Um, uh, you know, o- over the last couple of months, I believe India's uh, uh, population actually exceeded that of China, finally. So it's now the most populous country, according to some estimates, uh, in the world. Um, uh, the uh, uh, you know we talked just now about the PBOC wanting to sort of let the renminbi kind of almost free float. Uh, uh, currently, the Reserve Bank of India is actually managing uh, the the dollar uh, iron or the, you know the dollar rupee uh, across very tight levels between eighty one and eighty three, which actually makes it a very interesting and very good uh, sort of risk off hedge. You know the way we see it in the region. Uh, and whilst you know Chinese inflation uh, is 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 low and interest rates very very low, uh, which makes it I guess a, a very good candidate to use as a funding currency or to to be a short, uh, Indian uh, you know policy rates are in the realm of six and a half percent, which makes it a very very good uh, sort of reasonably high carry expression uh, in in the region, right? So so on that sort of from the market and from the economic side, you know India's a high uh, you know high growth country now, uh, you know kind of higher inflation but also high carry, right? Uh, and with the currency a little bit more managed in the recent in the recent uh, in, sort of in recent months, which I think makes it a good uh, uh, you know when the dollar is appreciating, right? Uh, the Indian rupee actually has stability, so it's actually a kind of relatively uh, a good currency to be you know let's say invested in versus the other ones. I do want to ask you about geopolitics as it relates to both of these economies, because both of these economies, um, India, I think especially, seems to be trying to be on both sides in terms of their relationship with Russia um, and their relationship with the uh, uh, with Western economies. You've seen recently some uh, weakness in the South African RAND as South Africa's relationship with Russia has really sort of uh, moved onto the from the back page onto the front page as a near term theme for markets. And we know that the geopolitical story between the US and China, the tensions there, like you said, going all the way back to the trade war and even beyond. Um, has been something simmering over these, uh, you know, the U.S.-China relationship and the China recovery. And one of the things you mentioned when you spoke about China was international investment into China and potential risks there. I, you know that for India, 
investment into that economy, foreign investment into the economy, particularly I think the equity market uh, is an important driver of uh, growth there. Um, how are you thinking about geopolitics in these economies? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think you know this 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 word that you use, uh, the counterpoint, is probably a good one. So, yeah, it's a good counterpoint because India is, let's face it, part of the Quad, right? Part of this U.S. alliance that's supposed to be have a very strong presence in the Asia Pacific region, uh, and in some respects, you know, as a counter to China, right? India is a member of them. But like you said as well, you know, this fact, the fact that India has been a very very large customer of Russian oil, actually, that's one of the major uh, one of the major reasons that you know india's historically historical trade deficit uh, and, and which was historically large after covid after the lockdowns uh, has been able to shrink very rapidly is because they've been able to buy out this russian oil uh, and that's really helped uh, reduce their oil import uh, bill even as the economy was growing uh, their oil costs uh, have actually shrunk right so i think that's been definitely one of the big factors in in getting um, sort of international investors uh, interested and excited in the Indian rupee, right? Uh, equity markets are growing very well, uh, and 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 uh, you know manufacturing is is also doing quite well. You know manufacturing is still a very small part of Indian of the Indian economy. Let's face it, but you know there are lots of high profile stories, lots of feel good stories because you know uh, you have international supply chains, uh, multinationals uh, that are concerned about their um, exposures to China. You know too much, too many eggs in one basket, if you will. Uh, that are diversifying uh, their supply chains to. To, to India, you know, one very very large multinational uh, electronics manufacturer actually started manufacturing and and uh, assembling in India, which is, I think was being it's been a big win uh, for for not only Indian equities but this idea that India you know can be an alternative manufacturing and assembly hub uh, in the region, right? So so in that sense, it's been able to really play its its sort of uh, uh, you know non-aligned status. Uh, to go back to you know that that sort of old, old terminology, but it's been able to play its online status really to its advantage uh, by you know uh, courting uh, both Western supply chains uh, and by uh, benefiting from cheap Russian oil. I do think the the idea of friendshoring is sort of a, a broader concept. Uh, you, you know, I don't think we should be sleeping on India as a potential beneficiary there. Certainly here in the U.S., we talk a lot about the benefits that Mexico could see, for example, just from its proximity. Uh, but I think there's also going to be looking around within the region, um, uh, you know, sort of outside of China when there's an opportunity to um, reposition um, what economies are well suited for that. And I think India is in a pretty good spot from that perspective as well. So with that, I think uh, we will stop it here. Thank you very much, Galvin, for joining. And thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you liked this episode, please be sure to hit the like button and subscribe to our channel uh, so that you can see the latest episodes when they're released. Thank you very much.